Thank you, Dave and Bethany. I, um, I don't know whether you know it or not, but uh, uh, the Potter's House as a church is standing behind Dave and Bethany and helping to support them as they go. Uh, we're always praying for them. There are other individuals in here who have become part of their support team as well. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at the judgment seat of Christ, at least temporarily uh, for a little bit, because we're, you know, we're in that section where Paul talks about the crown of righteousness uh, that he was so looking forward to receiving at the end of his race, at the end of his journey. And I hope you caught there that, uh, that Dave and Bethany are not going back uh, where they've come from because it's easy there. Uh, they're not going back where they've come from because it's comfortable there. They're not going back because of the fun. There are times when it's easy and comfortable and, and fun, but that's not why they're going back. They're going back because their master is sending them back. He's, uh, he's over there, and he's calling to them again, just like he has uh, so many times before. Uh, we're looking forward to the day when all of us are gathered together around the throne and the whole story can be told. That's going to be an amazing time. We've been standing behind David and Bethany and Lucy, and the day is going to come when we're going to be able to stand with them as they receive the crown of righteousness, their reward, for their faithfulness in doing the thing that God sent them to do. And that's the thing that we're going to be talking about this morning. This morning... Uh, we're going to be continuing our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. This is part 65. Can you believe it? 65 out of 66. This is the penultimate lesson, uh, part of, of, uh, of 2 Timothy. And uh, we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 15. Last week, Brian walked us through verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4. And fill this in on some things that the Apostle Paul was able to say as he neared the end of his life. In the passage from the previous week, Paul had challenged Timothy to keep his head in all situations, to endure hardship, and to fulfill all of the duties of his ministry. And last week, Brian reminded us of that challenge that, that Paul had laid to Timothy. And, and then Brian said that Paul was about to show Timothy what that would look like. And remarkably, Paul used his own life. He was able to use his own life as an example of what it means to keep your head in all situations, to, to endure hardship and to discharge all of the duties of the ministry that Jesus has given you. And as Paul played out that example for Timothy, Paul was able to say that he had, you remember, fought the good fight, I fought the good fight, I have finished my race, I have kept the faith. And that reality gave real meaning to Paul's encouragement to Timothy to follow him as he followed Christ. As Brian pointed out, Paul wasn't bragging when he said that. He wasn't saying, hey, look at me. He was saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow the example that I've set because I have followed the example that, that Jesus has set in my own life, is what Paul says to Timothy. Paul is only describing discipleship. That's all that is, following one another's examples. But in other words, Paul had already done what he was challenging Timothy to do. He's nearing the end of his life, and, and this much younger man, 
is, uh, is following Paul's lead. And the day is going to come when Timothy is old and worn out and decrepit like me. And, and he's, his, his life, his ministry, who knows how much longer he would, I, would, I have right now. Who knows how much longer Timothy had coming to him at that point. But Paul had kept his head, the very thing that he asked Timothy to do. Paul had kept his head when, when controversy had swirled all around him. He had endured hardship as he suffered for the sake of the gospel, and he had discharged his ministry that he received on the day that he met Jesus in Damascus and completed on the day when he saw Jesus face-to-face in heaven. And that's what Brian meant last week when he said that Paul was enduring in the present and he was faithful in the past because he was looking forward to the future when he, be, he would be rewarded with the crown of righteousness. That was something at the core of Paul's heart. Paul was motivated to excel here on earth because that would make it possible for him to be rewarded in heaven. It wasn't about the big bucks for Paul. We know that for sure. It wasn't about the big bucks for him. It was about remaining faithful. After all, the idea of rewards, and, and this is such an important point um, that... Uh, that, that Brian made last week when he talked to us, uh, the idea of rewards, were God, that was God's idea. Jesus wants to. He longs to reward our faithfulness to him. And, and, and last week, Brian, echoing Paul, told us to begin with the end in mind, and then he apologized for Stephen Covey and blamed me for the fact that you would use that quote, thank you very much, I'll, I will endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ at this point. Um, but he, you know, he apologized, but, but I think if you listened to the message, you understood that Paul actually understood and lived out that truism, that pattern, uh, long before Stephen Covey discovered it and put it to words. Those weren't Paul's words. Paul did not say, begin with the end in mind, but clearly that's how Paul lived his life. So we all have to learn to live with the end in mind, but that doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean that we have to work hard to get ourselves into heaven. I hope you caught that too. And in that light, I want to remind you this morning that you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will end your life journey in heaven. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, be very clear. Heaven is not your reward. Heaven is your home. Heaven is not your reward Heaven is your home. Jesus is not going to let you into heaven because you've worked so hard. And uh, one of the definitions of home that I, I love the best is the one that says that home is the place that when, when you get there, they have to let you in. When you get there, they have to let you in. This happens to me at the end of most days. I work hard here at the office, or, or maybe I don't work hard here at the office. I don't know. But I go home, and my wife, remarkably, always lets me in. Not because I've worked hard at the office, but because it is my home. She has to let me in. So as Paul thinks about the good fight that he's, he's fighting, he is looking forward to heaven when the fight is over. But he's not thinking of heaven as the reward for fighting the good fight. As Paul thinks about the race that he's been running, he is looking forward to heaven when his race is finished. I know that he was. But he's not thinking of heaven as the reward for finishing his race. And as Paul thinks about how he has kept the faith all those years, and he is looking forward to going to heaven when his faith will become a reality, but he is not thinking of heaven as his reward for keeping the faith. That's such a vital point. 
I don't want to upset the apple cart here, but Paul knew, listen to me, Paul knew that heaven was his home, and that means that he knew that he would go to heaven even if he didn't remain faithful. Did you hear that? Paul knew that he would go to heaven even if he didn't remain faithful. That's, by, that's what salvation by, by grace, through faith means. Salvation by grace. Salvation is by grace, not in response to good deeds or good work that you've done. And that means that it's, it was not thoughts of going to heaven that kept Paul motivated to be faithful. He knew he didn't have to be faithful to get into heaven. So it wasn't heaven that made him remain faithful. It was his certainty that Jesus, the righteous judge, would reward him for his faithfulness. The reward is a whole nother thing. Paul stayed motivated throughout his life, and as Brian pointed out, Paul was also trying to motivate you to be faithful. He was trying to motivate me to be faithful so that we can look forward to our reward. Because if you're fighting the good fight, if you're running the race, and if you're keeping the faith, then that is evidence that you love the truth that Jesus is coming back someday with your reward. And we know that if you live diligently because you love the return of Jesus and you love the reward that he's offering, you can be sure that you will receive the crown of life from him on the day that you see him face to face. That was what Paul told us, in essence, last week. And with that review in place, let's start unpacking the passage for today. And as you know, we always start to unpack a passage by reading it. So if you will, please stand with me as we read together aloud from 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 15. Join me if you would. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. As you take your seats, <coughs> please whisper a prayer again that God will speak to you this morning. The story that I want to tell you this morning comes from the book of Acts and has to do with someone named Saul. And spoiler alert, since I know I can't fool you as we get into this, I'll tell you right away that after the events of this story, Saul will change his name to Paul. Yeah, that Paul. In this story, Saul will trust Jesus as his Savior and begin a journey that will not end until after Paul sends a second letter to Timothy. This is the last of Paul's letters. We're finishing the last of Paul's letters. There would be nothing easy about the journey that Paul would be began that day, and Paul's very difficult journey will end in a shocking and egregious way. But after the story, we'll see that Paul would remain faithful, as will many of his friends and co-workers, even though there will be others in Paul's life who will lose their faith and even turn against the Apostle Paul. With that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Saul was threatening daily to murder all of the followers of Jesus. 
And with that goal in mind, he went to the high priest and the people who were working with the high priest to ask for letters that would give him authority to go to Damascus on behalf of the Sanhedrin. His plan when he got to Damascus was to arrest anyone, anyone he found who belonged to what was then called the way. In other words, the followers of Jesus. And when he had arrested them, his plan was to bring them in chains back to Jerusalem. As he was getting close to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, a light that was brighter than the noonday sun. And in the midst of that explosion of intense light, Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice asked. Saul had no idea who, what was going on or who this was. And so immediately he asked, who are you, Lord? Still unsure what was behind what he was hearing. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, the voice replied. Now get up on your feet and go into the city of Damascus and you will be told what you must do. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. He was stone cold blind. The men with him could see that he was fumbling in the darkness of his blindness, so they led him to the nearby city of Damascus, and he stayed there for three days, unable to see, and he neither ate nor drank, because Saul knew that, that in a situation like that, fasting is really the best choice. A follower of Jesus named Ananias lived in Damascus as well, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, the Lord said, yes, Lord. Ananias replied, the Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Saul because he's praying. The Lord continued, he's seen a vision and in that vision, a man named Ananias comes into the house and placed his hands on him so that he can receive his sight. But Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And I've also heard that he's come here. He's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest every single person he can find who follows you. Seems that Ananias was wondering how wise it was to help a man who had caused God's people so much harm. I still want you to go and heal him, the Lord said, because I have a plan for his life, and I want him to know that he will teach the Gentiles about me including their kings and rulers. I also want you to tell him that he will have much to teach the people of Israel as well. And when you have explained all of that, the Lord said, I also want him to understand that he will suffer greatly for the sake of my name. Ananias obeyed. He went to the house where Saul was staying and he went inside. He found Saul just as the Lord had told him he would and he went to Saul and he placed his hands on him and on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to you. And Jesus, that very one you met on the road, has told me to, to help you see again and help you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately as Ananias said that, there was something like scales that fell from Saul's eyes and just as suddenly, he was able to see. Saul immediately got up and was baptized. And after eating some food, he regained his strength. And that's the story from God's Word. We've been saying that, that Paul loved the idea that Jesus was coming, to back, coming back to earth with his reward. 
Jesus actually had the goal of rewarding the people who had been faithful to him. And Paul wasn't alone in loving that idea. Uh, and you might be surprised at this, but one of the people that loves that idea the most is Jesus himself. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus has seen and taken note of your faithfulness to him from the very beginning of your faith journey. He is seeing your faithfulness to him right now at this moment. And he will see and take note of your faithfulness until the moment that you see him. And this story that we've just looked at perhaps helps us to understand why Paul was loving the moment when Jesus would come back with Paul's reward in hand. Of all the things that Jesus could have said, he was bringing with him. I, I'm coming soon and you get to see me. You get, I mean, there's a thousand things he could have said. But the thing nearest to his heart was, I'm coming soon and I have your reward with me. I will have it in hand when we meet. So Paul was loving that idea, and he was trying to motivate Timothy to be faithful so that Timothy could be looking forward to his reward. And as Paul motivated Timothy, he was also motivating you and me. And as we move from the story from God's Word into the truth from God's Word, I want to ask you to pay attention to the semantics of this passage. Semantics is, is a big word, but the simplest way for us to understand it would be for us to think about a conversation that you and I might have right after church. Uh, now, none of this stuff is true, but uh, just imagine that it is. Let's imagine that I come up to you right after church, and after I get your attention, I say, hey, I bought a car. Just like that, right out of the blue. Hey, I bought a car. If I did that, if, and, and if you're not in a bad mood and you're ready to engage in a conversation, you might ask me a question. What question would you be likely to ask me if I, if I started the conversation like that just out of the blue? You might say, oh, really? What kind of car did you buy? And that's when I would tell you that I bought a brand new Lamborghini, which of course would prompt you to ask other questions. And, and probably you'd also have questions for the business team here at church. If, yeah. Anyway, we just don't need to go into that because I know how judgmental you are. I, I, you know, I walk up and say, hey, I bought a car. And the next thing you know, you're calling me on the carpet. No, I know you wouldn't do that. But let's turn the conversation around a little. What if I were to walk up to you right out of the blue at the end of church and say, hey, I bought the car. I bought the car. Well, that's a different conversation. It's a different statement. And if I were to say, hey, I bought the car, you'd have a question for me. Most likely, I think you would say, what car did you buy? Not what kind of car did you buy, as though it's some random car, but what car did you buy? What, what are you talking about? Are you following me here? I, if I said a car, you'd ask what kind of car. If I said the car, you'd ask what car. Wondering why you can't remember this car that clearly we've talked about before. You don't start a conversation with, I bought the car. Semantically, it's a difference in the part of speech we call an article. A is an indefinite article, while the is a definite article, and trust me, I'm going somewhere here. A car is a random car that I'm bringing up for the first time. The car is the car that I've already talked to you about before. 
When I say a car, I'm assuming you don't know what car I'm talking about, what kind of car. When I say the car, I'm assuming that you know exactly which car I'm talking about. It's a previous conversation, the car. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, to answer that question, I want to backtrack a little and have us read verse 7 with that particular semantic in mind. What does Paul say there in verse 7? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's do some exegesis here. What, what do you notice about the article that Paul uses in each of those phrases? What do you notice about it? Based on the language that Paul is using here, is he talking about a random faith, a, a random fight, a random race, and a random faith that we know nothing about? Or is he talking about a specific fight, a specific race, and a specific faith that we all understand and are experiencing. It's that latter one, isn't it? That tells us that the fight, the race, and the faith are not unique to Paul as an apostle. They're not unique to Paul as a church planter or as a missionary. Paul is talking about something that we all share. He's clearly talking about the fight we all are fighting. The race we all are running, the faith that we all are keeping, and that reinforces the words we find in verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We share this in common with Paul. And so we share the fight, the race, uh, uh, that, that, that fight, this is where we need to remember that, that in Paul's life, he had fought the good fight. He had run the race. He had kept the faith. And that fight for the purity and integrity of the gospel that Paul was fighting is the fight that we're all fighting. Right? That, that race that Paul was racing, was running, is the race that we're all racing. Right? That faith that Paul had in the finished work of Christ is the same faith that we are all keeping. Right? Well, we know from what we learned last week that if we're fighting the good fight and if we're finishing the race and if we're keeping the faith, then we can be sure that we will receive the crown of righteousness which Jesus is longing to give to all those who are faithful. But are there some who are, not fi- who are fighting but are not fighting the good fight? Are there some who are running but are not running the race that Jesus has chosen for them? Are there some who are keeping something that they're believing but not keeping the faith that Paul was keeping? And if there are, what's going to happen to them? Will Jesus give them the crown of righteousness? When the day comes when they finally stand before him? Is that the plan? Will Jesus give them the crown of righteousness? Well, I can just say I'm, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> the rest of my notes wouldn't make any sense at all if, you, if you're not puzzled about this same thing that's puzzling me right now. If, um, since you asked, I want to remind you where chapter 4 began. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom... I give you this charge. Preach the word. 
Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Chapter 4 began with Paul saying that a time would come when Jesus would judge the living and the dead. And if you're trying to imagine this morning who the living are and who the dead are, I want to remind you of a truism that we've often talked about from this pulpit. Jesus does not make bad people good. Jesus makes dead people good alive. We've said that often. He does not make bad people good. He makes dead people alive. And as Brian pointed out back then, back when we did this, uh, 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 the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is talking about the living being judged as they stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the dead being judged as they stand before the great white throne. And here's something that we all need to understand. No one who stands before the judgment seat of Christ will go to hell. No one who stands before the judgment seat of Christ will go to hell because they were spiritually dead, but they trusted Christ to save them and make them alive eternally. So no one that stands before the judgment seat of Christ will go to hell. But there's a flip side to that. No one who stands before the great white throne will go to heaven. Because they were spiritually dead, but they never trusted Christ to make them alive. So they are already dead and will remain dead eternally, even after the great white throne judgment. And just to be clear, when we talk about dead and alive in this context, we're talking about people who are spiritually dead and spiritually alive. We're not talking about physical. We're talking about the same thing that Jesus talked to Nicodemus about, being born again of the Spirit. So to sum up, the dead will stand before the great white throne and the living will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So that means this morning that, listen to me, if you're still dead in your sins, if you're still spiritually dead, if you haven't been born again, then you need to trust Christ to make you alive because there is no hope once you stand before the great white throne. And there's also a flip side to this this morning. If you're alive in Christ this morning, then you need to be aware that you will someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't want you to be afraid of that. The whole idea behind the judgment seat of Christ is reward. There's a lot that we could say in parsing this, but in essence, the great white throne is all about punishment. The judgment seat of Christ is all about reward. And I know that what I just said is not politically correct, and I know that there are those who pretend to teach the Bible who would tell you that that's an outdated way to look at what's going to happen at the end of time. That's just, that's just the, the, the major theme of those who are deconstructing their faith. But I can assure you that the great white throne judgment is all about punishment. The, ju the judgment seat of Christ is all about reward. And if you'd like to think about that some more, Come and talk to me when you're done talking to David and Bethany and, and I can point you to some passages in 1 Corinthians and Revelation that'll clear that up for you. Or you could attend Life Group this week. There's a novel idea because we'll be discussing this in greater detail, the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne. But in the meantime, let's get back to what Paul's saying here in this passage because Paul, are you ready for this, is going to have something to say about Timothy, Demas, Cretans, Titus, Luke, John Mark, Tychicus, Carpus, and Alexander. <laughs> I hope you brought your lunches with you with that kind of a list up there. 
All of those men, I can tell you in this passage, appear to be believers, and all of those men appear to be alive in Christ. So that means that all of those men there on that list will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but it's clear from the passage that we're looking at this morning that they will have very different experiences when it comes time to receive their reward. As we start into this, I want to remind you that Paul is in prison because of what he believed and what he taught. And it's, it's important that we know that Paul will soon be executed. Uh, we don't know if it's weeks or months, but it is very close at this point. Paul will soon be executed for what he believes and what he teaches. And it's also important to know that historically, we know from history, not from this passage, but we know from history that the persecution of the Jesus followers ramped up significantly right around the time of the death of Paul. The world began exacting a higher and higher cost for those who were determined to follow Christ at any cost. And remember, when Paul was a young man, he had not yet met and had not yet met Jesus. Paul had been fighting against the cause of Christ. But in the decades since Paul trusted Jesus as his Savior, Paul had been fighting for the cause of Christ. And here's something that we know. If Paul had kept fighting against the cause of Christ, if he had If he had continued on that trajectory, the world would have loved him. The world would have taken him in and taken care of him. He was a Jew and a Roman citizen at the same time. So everybody in his world would have have just made things great for the Apostle Paul. Although he wouldn't have been the Apostle Paul. If If Paul had continued to fight the Jesus followers, the world would have treated him well. If Paul had just left well enough alone, he could have died happy and contented, having earned the admiration of the world in which he was living. With that in mind, let's go to the list. Timothy was a disciple of the Apostle Paul, and he was Paul's son in the faith. And we know that Timothy is still on the right track at this point because he's about to take a very great risk by visiting Paul in prison. And we know that from verse 9, where Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Demas, on the other hand, had abandoned what he believed. And we say that because Demas preferred what the world could offer him to what Jesus was offering. And it may be that Demas was just tired of facing persecution. It may be that he was tired of standing next to the Apostle Paul as Paul was chained there in the prison. We don't know that. But he decided at some point that it would be better to go with the world than to continue to follow Jesus. And we know that because of what it says in verse 10. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. So here's the question I have. Is Demas going to heaven? Well, it's clear that he had trusted Christ and was alive in Christ. But I think it's safe to say that we can be sure that the reward that Demas will receive at the judgment seat of Christ will be diminished by his choice that he made here in verse 10. He will be in heaven. If he was alive in Christ, then he is eternally alive. He will be in heaven, but when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ, he won't receive as large a reward. He won't receive the reward that he would have received if he had remained faithful for the rest of his life. Cretans and Titus were in a different category than Demas because they'd left Paul behind in prison but had gone away for different reasons than the reasons that Demas had for leaving. 
Paul talks about Cretans and Titus, but he does not say that they loved this present world more than they loved Jesus. In fact, it's likely that they went away for the cause of ministry. Look what Paul says about them in the rest of verse 10. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia, maybe to buy a dog, I don't know. Um, no, 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 that was like a Bible joke, and just ignore that. Not good to make fun of the Bible. They went away because they had ministry obligations, likely generated on their own. Look at what Paul says about, uh, look, Luke we know. Luke we know was a physician who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And, and by the way, Luke also wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, including Paul. We say that because he wrote the book of Luke, which is very long, and the book of Acts, which is even longer, 28 chapters long. And so Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else did. But did Luke fall away there at the end like Demas had? Well, we know, we know that he didn't because of what Paul says about him in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Remarkably, Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, just like most of us. And that's good. I mean... That's good. That's good for us. He was a Gentile just like most of us, and despite being a Gentile, Luke had decided to follow Jesus and continued to follow him throughout the, entire, the rest of his life. Luke fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. So what kind of reward do you suppose Luke will be receiving when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ? I'll, I'll let you answer that, and I hope your answer encourages your non-Jewish heart. Mark who was also called John Mark, was someone that Paul knew even before he got acquainted with Timothy. And maybe you know his story, but Paul knew John Mark before he knew Timothy. John Mark was one of the ones that went with Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. They traveled together, they preached together, they ministered together, and at some point, John Mark just got tired. John Mark may well have been a mama's boy, and he's just missing home, and I, we, don't, we don't know all of the details there. And like Brian said, it's not a bad thing to be a mama's boy, but it could be dangerous, you know? And, and now John Mark, he's just gone home. Paul and Barnabas finished that journey together, and, and at the end of that journey, they're going to go on a second missionary journey, and, and Barnabas comes to Paul, and he says, we should take John Mark. And Paul says, no way. No way I'm taking that guy. We, we, you know, all that work that we had to do, we had to do on our own because he deserted us. He's gone. And Barnabas said, well, you know, I, I think John Mark could potentially be valuable. He, he, I, think, I think he'll do better. than Paul, Paul, who is focused on the work, says no. Barnabas, who is focused on the individual, says yes. And the, this agreement is so sharp between them that they end up going their separate ways. Paul chooses Silas and heads in one direction, and, and, and Barnabas chooses John Mark, and they head off in another direction. And uh, I, I really love what Paul says about John Mark in verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I love that. Barnabas had invested in the life of John Mark, as had the apostle Peter, we know from history. And it was John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And Mark remains a wonderful example for us today of someone who fell down but didn't stay down. And for all of us who have ever fallen down, Mark should be an encouragement to us because while there was a part of Mark's life that may not have merited a large reward, we know that he got back up when he fell down. 
And we know that there's reward in that. So you and I may fall down, but as long as we don't stay down, we can still receive a reward for choosing to follow Jesus again. Tychicus is in another category. Cretans and Titus had left Rome for ministry elsewhere, seemingly under their own initiative, but Paul had sent Tychicus. Look what it says there in verse 12. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Paul sent Tychicus, but in reality, Tychicus, Tychicus, oh, I wish it wasn't his name. Tychicus, I, I don't, nicknames, man, it would be rough for a guy like that. Tychicus went there to follow Jesus, not to follow Paul. And so we know that the reward that Jesus planned to reward. And, and here's the deal. It, it may be across the street or around the world where Jesus sends us. But there's a reward for those people who go where Jesus sends them. You don't have to go to Malaysia to get a reward. You don't have to go to the Philippines to get a reward. You don't have to go to Brazil to get a reward. Unless, of course, Jesus is leading you there. If he's leading you there, then go. By all means, go. Chase the reward that he's offering you. But even if it's just across the street, there's reward for that. Um, and Carpus? We don't know much about him at all. Uh, in fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where he's mentioned. We think he lived in Troas. We're not sure, but that's about all that we know about him. Um, but look what Paul says about him in verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. So what's Carpus known for? <laughs> he held on to a cloak. He held on to some scrolls, and he held on to some parchments. That's, that's all he did. And I know it doesn't sound like much. Listen to me. It doesn't sound like much, but we're still talking about him 2,000 years after he died. It was the thing that, that Jesus gave him to do. Hold on for these, to these for Paul. Hold on to them. Because Paul is coming back. Paul, I... I um, he, he may come back and pick him up or he may just send for them, but hold on to them. And Carpus did that faithfully so that Paul at the end of his life is able to say, hey, I know where my cloak is. I know where the scrolls are. I know where the parchments are. Carpus has them. Let me ask you this morning, what are you doing for Jesus? What is Jesus asking you to do? Maybe it's your job to fill holes in the wall when there's holes in the wall in the church. Maybe when the pipes are leaking, you're the one that, maybe you're the one that just gets the offering. Maybe you're the one that takes care of the kids. Maybe you're the, maybe, I don't, whatever your job is, no matter how small it may seem, we're still going to be talking about you in eternity. If you faithfully, because you faithfully do that simple thing that God asks you to do. Having said all of that, I want to say that it's about to turn a little ominous here, and I, I, I wish there was another way around this, but there's one more guy that we need to talk about in the, in the five minutes that we have, or four minutes that we have. Who's doing that to my watch? The four minutes that we have, it's a man named Alexander, and look at what it says about Alexander in, well, here in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. We met him last Last year, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. 
holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hamineus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I've handed him over to Satan. So Paul enacted church discipline on on Alexander because he had made shipwreck both Alexander and Hymenaeus. And, and we might not be surprised to discover that Alexander didn't like that very well. And now the Apostle Paul is on trial. It's years later. The Apostle Paul is on trial and Alexander is going to come up, is going to come into this again, into the story again. Alexander actually has made shipwreck. He's turned his back on the faith He's, he's in a place where, where Demas might have been at the same time, but didn't come back. Alexander was not only one of those people who didn't support the Apostle Paul, but uh, he actually took him on. Look at what it says there. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm, so you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Next week, Brian is going to finish uh, 2 Timothy for us. He's going to walk us through those last verses where Paul an anticipates this second trial that's, that's coming up. He's going re to reflect on the fact that, that at his first trial, nobody stood with him. Paul will say that. But look what it says about Alexander in this passage, that part that we skipped over. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. It seems that Alexander actually took the stand against the Apostle Paul and denied Paul's message, denied Paul's ministry. He actually went on the attack and harmed the Apostle Paul. It's very likely that that testimony was the one that, that brought about the end of Paul's life. He did him great harm. Alexander, the metal worker, did great harm. I want you to notice something here, there in that passage. It doesn't say that the Lord is going to punish Alexander. It says that the Lord is going to repay Alexander. Tell you what I believe based on what we've seen. Alexander believed. We know that his faith was true at one point. He came to the place where he... He began to deconstruct his faith, as so many are doing these days. And that deconstruction, like we've been saying all along as we've made our way through, second, through First and Second Timothy, that deconstruction finally broke down his faith to the point where it was no longer there. And at that point, he actually opposed the message that the Apostle Paul was preaching. And that doesn't say that the Lord is going to punish him for that when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ Jesus will actually take away the reward that Alexander would have received for earlier in his life. Alexander is going to enter heaven empty-handed. Empty-handed. And I hope that helps us to understand the, the judgment seat of Christ. I wish I had more time. I did my best to pare this, this message down, and I apologize for, for just having to wing it here at the end. But listen to me. It's absolutely vital that you and I understand that we know that as we, as we fight the good fight, as we run the race that's been laid out for us to run, as we keep the faith that, that we've inherited, that a day is going to come when we stand in the presence of our Savior who is longing, 
longing to reward us. You may fall down along the way. That's okay. Get up. You may decide that you'd like to be more comfortable than you are right now, and so well, you may walk off for a little while. That's okay. Come back. Don't follow the example of Alexander, who deconstructed his faith. I hope you understand why Brian and I, and from this pulpit so often, we've said, don't, don't participate in that false gospel. Don't participate in, in deconstructing your faith. Instead, continue to build your faith, construct your faith until the day when you finally stand before him so that you can receive the crown of righteousness. And that just leaves me wondering, what is it that you're supposed to be doing? Are you doing it? If you're not, this would be a really good week to get busy with that. I don't know who we're applauding for, but I agree. <laughs> this would be a really good week to get, to get busy with that, to just do what God has asked you to do and to do it faithfully. And while you're doing it, it's okay. And it's even important that you look forward to the day when you're going to stand face to face with him and he's going to hand you the reward that he has been longing to give you. I am coming soon, he said, and my reward is with me. Will you stand with me in your presence? Father and our God, thank you so much for this week and, and, and the things that, that we've been able to hear from Dave and Bethany, the worship time that we had together, these things from your word, these men that, that set examples, some of them good examples, some of them really bad examples. God, I pray that, that uh, even as we prayed when we began, we wanted to see Jesus in the midst of all of this. We wanted to, to say that we love you, God, and we do. We're looking forward to the day when, when you come back, and, and I, I, I want to say on behalf of the entire fellowship that, Lord Jesus, we're waiting for you. We are waiting for you, and we intend to remain faithful, to stay busy, to keep our seatbelts buckled no matter how bad, how bumpy the ride gets. God, we are going to be faithful by your grace so that when we stand in your presence, we can receive the crown of righteousness that you've prepared for those who love your return. God, thank you for encouraging us and, and thank you for sending us out from here into that, that world out there that so badly needs to hear about you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of assignment, you know, we've all got our assignments. Let's go out there. Let's be faithful. Let's fight the good fight. And let's, uh, let's come back next week to hear the end of 2 Timothy. All that's left is for me to say, ready? Yeah. <laughs>